part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, it's good to see you and open up to Mark chapter 1. If you were not with us last week, uh, I do encourage you to go back and and see the, uh, the service online so that you can kind of get that foundation that we laid. It's kind of, we always call it nerd day. It's kind of that, okay, what is this chapter going to be about or this book going to be about? And so I'm not going to review all of that, but we are going to pick back up in chapter 1 and kind of see... Um, Something that Mark wants to establish from the very, very beginning. If you remember from last week, the key verse, most theologians and scholars would agree, out of the Gospel of Mark, is Mark 10.45 that talks about how Christ has come not to be served, but to serve, and to die as a ransom of many. This is the attitude. And so one of the ways that we can kind of surmise the writing of Mark and the Gospel of Mark in comparison to the Gospel of Matthew and John and, and Luke is that he's portraying Christ as the suffering servant. And we're going to see that all the way through. It's the most personal of all the books. It's the most chronological of the ministries of books. But it focuses on the person of Christ. He makes much of the person of Christ and not just the teaching of Christ. That's why you're not going to find the Sermon on the Mount. You're not going to find any long discourses of Christ. What you're going to see is Christ interacting with people and how their lives are changed. And we begin to see that even in this very first chapter. But before Mark goes on and gives us this full betrayal of this suffering servant, he wants us to know something very, very important about this Christ. Uh, we have a lot of teachers, a lot of people in education in our church, even a small church like ours. I think we have like 23 people in our church that are teachers or somehow, uh, whether it's homeschool, this, that, or the other, that just have you know, this teaching position. Uh, we actually have just two that are here this morning in this first service. So I'm going to ask either Sherry, as you teach, or if Emily, and when you're teaching, I know your teaching is a little bit different because you know you're teaching in a preschool. Uh, you're teaching more in a graded school. Do you try to establish? What do you try to establish? From day one. Now I know yours is a little bit different because you do sub teaching, and so you know I know how we used to treat the substitutes. Okay, you know, can we? You know, it's, it's kind of can we take advantage of this situation? So, Sherry, I'm asking you, do you try to establish authority from the very beginning? I mean, I know you're a very nice person, okay, and you love these kids. You generally love these kids, even though you're in there for a day or maybe for a couple of days. Is it important to establish authority when you're the substitute teacher going in? Definitely. Definitely. If not, what will happen? Yes, they will. <laughs> Little first and second graders. Have you ever seen Kindergarten Cop or, or something like that? I, I think that was the name of the, the, the movie where big old Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he's this big old guy. And yet, man, you get a lot of preschoolers, they will take you. They will take you. And so that's kind of, I, I share that this morning because this is what Mark's going to do. There's something that Mark wants us to know about Christ, about Jesus, before we see the complete picture of the suffering servant. And both are true. But without this first establishment, it, it, it kind of takes away from the suffering servant part. So again, Mark chapter 1, we'll be looking there. Um, remember, this is Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. There's this sense of urgency. In fact, his favorite word, if you remember it from last week, 
we see it throughout chapter 1, is the word immediately. seems like Mark is always saying that something's happening very, very fast. And he quickly moves. Ten chapters on three years of ministry of Christ. And then he spends the last six chapters just on the Passion Week. He is so desperate to get to the cross. He's so desperate to see what Christ's mission was all about and the accomplishment of that, that he is running through three years of ministry. That's why we don't see the birth of Christ in this. He doesn't go into a lot of things. In fact, I think the perfect example is what we looked at last week. In um, Mark chapter 1, when it began to talk about in verse uh, 12 and 13, he just says, instead of all the temptations of Christ, he says, and Jesus was led by the Spirit to the, uh, the desert, and he was tempted. And angels came and ministered to him. I mean, like in 12 words, instead of what the temptations were and all the discourse going back and forth between Satan and, and Christ, like some of the other Gospels did, he just says, he was led to the desert, he was tempted, and then he was ministered to by angels. End of story. Why? Because he's quick to go to the cross. Well, in this sense of urgency, there's one thing that he wants to quickly establish, though. Even though he's quick to want to get there, that this is the suffering servant. That Jesus Christ came, the Lamb of God came, to die for men. Not to be served, but to serve and to redeem lost mankind. There's one thing that he wants to establish. And that is the authority of Christ. Sherry, just like you would say, okay, it's very important in those opening minutes of the day with this classroom to kind of establish, I'm the teacher, you're not. Okay, I'm in control, you're not. And we kind of establish that. I mean, even as parents, that's one of the things that we do sometimes as we begin to train our children that we are the parents, you're not. If you ask both of my girls, we didn't have a lot of rebellion. We were very blessed, very much with... Two that were uh, uh, had very obedient spirits by the grace of God and by a, a great, great mama. Uh, and, and they were just kind of compliant kids. You know, there's just, if you said, do this, for the most part, they did it. Not always with the right attitude, but they were at least compliant in what they did. And so we didn't get a lot of rebellion. But one thing that Carly and I tried to do, and that I've, when I've done uh, parenting seminars in the past, is the importance of establishing authority. We're the parents, and you're not. And sometimes those discussions that can go on for an hour because the parents and the children going back and forth, back and forth, that just didn't happen in our house. We just said, no, we're the parents. You're not. End of story. This is what we're going to do. And as much as they would try to sometimes, well, what about, what about, what about? No, we're the parents. You're not. You don't have to agree with it, but we are the parents and you're not. It's really important to establish that in a household. It's really important for Mark to establish this about this suffering servant, that Christ is one of authority. He begins there in verse 1. Let's go back to verse 1 because last week we we looked at it a little bit. But look at it from a, a, a point of view of what Mark is trying to establish about Christ. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He uses three different descriptors of who Christ is. First he says Jesus. And what he's establishing there is that this is the humanity of Jesus, he was a real man. He has this personal name, just like Ricky and Sherry and Bobby and others. We have a real name. And so he wants, I want you to know this is a real person. And his name is Jesus. Then he says Christ. That was the Greek word, the Hebrew word for that would have been Messiah. And he says, I want you to know that this Jesus, this person of Jesus, is the Messiah. 
He's the one that we've been waiting for, even after this 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then look what he says. Kind of unusual for Mark. He says, the Son of God. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, one thing that you're going to see, the reference of Christ is the common one that Mark uses is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. So why does he use Son of God here instead of the more common that he's going to use throughout the rest of the Gospel, Son of Man? Because he wants to establish authority. I want you to know that Jesus is human. That's why he's got a human name. He is the awaited Messiah. He's come with a mission, and he is the son of the living God. And so he wants to establish all that for his readers. His readers were Romans, and authority was really big to Romans. To a Roman community, authority was everything. They were used to the Caesars. They were used to a Senate. They were used to authorities. And one thing in Rome, they may not have always had you know, the best of, of understandings of a lot of things, but they understood authority. And as a Roman citizen and to a Roman audience that Mark's writing to, one of the things that they would have recognized and desired from the very beginning is this recognition of authority. And so we begin to see that as Mark begins to open up. Look at verse 7 and 8. As he talks about John the Baptist, he wants to establish who John the Baptist was, but he wants to establish the authority of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And he preached, saying... He's talking about John the Baptist preaching. After me comes one, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He he established, okay, look, you have given me kind of rank as John the Baptist that I have some authority. I want you to know that the one that I'm the forerunner to, the one that's going to come after me... I, I, my authority is like here. His authority is way, way up here. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the very Spirit of God. So Mark begins to tell us this about Christ. Now look about this authority being affirmed from the heavenlies. Look at verse 11. Jesus is baptized. And after he's baptized, as he's coming up out of the water, look what it says. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. And so even the heavens are declaring this authority. God the Father, looking upon God the Son, says, you have this authority. Now again, this would have been everything to a Roman audience. They responded to authority. So what kind of authority did did Mark want to establish? Three things this morning. Three different areas of authority that Mark is quick to make sure that we get this foundation before we read the whole rest of the gospel and really focus on the Son of Man and a suffering servant. First thing, the authority of his calling. Perhaps one of the biggest mistakes that we make uh, about Jesus in this portrayal of his call is somehow we kind of see him as a weaker kind of begging type of savior. And folks, he was not. So often we make Jesus as if when he goes out to crowds that he's just begging people to follow him. As if Jesus was needing us rather than us recognizing our need for him. 
Folks, we get it totally wrong if we have this Jesus who's going around as if he's running for political office, as if he's trying to be the Messiah. Hey, will you follow me? I'm the Messiah and I'd love for you to follow me. This is not how it happens and it's not how it's recorded in the Gospels and it's especially not how it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. So oftentimes, it's, it's, we've even been prone to that in the church. You know, even evangelists, even in our evangelism sometimes. Hey, will you just try Jesus? Folks, get, please get this. We don't try Jesus. He is God. <laughs> He's not begging for support. He came for one reason. And that's why he served rather than being served, to redeem us. It's really quite offensive, not to me as a follower of Christ. I think it's offensive to a holy God if we portray him as this begging God. Well, you just kind of give God a, you know, a little space in your life and see if he doesn't make things, you know, kind of work out and all your problems will go away. This is not the biblical portrayal of Christ. He's not a product that you try. He's God. And how offensive when we ever portray a weak Jesus, kind of this, you know, almost girly version, uh, this so meek that he just goes around begging people. This is not the biblical Christ. I promise you, he is a man's man. And when he spoke, he spoke with authority. And that's what we see. Look at verse 16 and 17. He goes up to some other men's men, fishermen. Now today, Navy guys kind of have this, you know, if you talk about Army guys and Navy guys and Air Force guys, they all have their particular kind of, you know, roughness. But I remember my dad, who was in the Air Force, talking about, well, those Navy guys, you know, they're kind of rough. And, you know, we even talk about, you know, he speaks like a sailor or something like that. They're kind of this rough exterior. Well, these are fishermen. These are guys that do a rough job. Okay, they're out there kind of in a rough exterior. They've been doing that for generations. Their daddy and their granddaddy and their granddaddy's daddy had done this for generations. And yet look what happens in verse 16 and 17. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw, that is, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, do you get any sense of begging or pleading there? He didn't say, would you like to follow me? Let me tell you a little bit about my ministry, my intention. I, I plan to go out there and help people, and, and we're going to be really kind. And, and we're even going to do sometimes where we're going to do some public feeding of people, and they're going to be really hungry, and we're going to take a little fish, and we're going to multiply it in such a way that everybody goes away really, really full that day. And we're going to do some healings and different things. It's going to be a really exciting ministry. It's going to have its tough days. But, you know, so I, I'm just wondering, would you like to sign up and follow me? Is that what you sense in these two verses? No. He comes along, guys, and he says, he looks them, and I believe that he's probably looking at them in the eyes. Follow me, and I will help you to become fishers of men. Now look at the response. This is not a needy Savior saying, you know, I promise you Hawaii if you sign up for the service. You know. (laughs) Verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
They didn't sign up and say, well, let me go back and ask my wife about it. Let me talk to the kids. Let me, you know, since this is a family business, let me talk to the others involved in the business because, you know, I'm the one that does a lot of the grunt work. And so maybe if we're not there, maybe we're letting down our own father. Do you see any of that discussion going on? Christ comes up. And he doesn't offer them something. He commands them, drop your nets and follow me. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Folks, there's a commanding Jesus. Why? Because he has authority. And to make sure that this wasn't just a a single time, look at verses 19 and 20. It's almost identical. And I think Mark is telling us this story again with, with James and John, because he wants us to see the consistency of this. Verse 19 and 20. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. So again, fishermen, kind of rough guys, you know. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Do you get what's happening here? He comes up and he says, okay, follow me. Drop your nets, follow me. Immediately, their dad's right there. Up until the time that he passed, my dad's opinion was still very, very, very important to me. It was one of those, I was a grown man, but even before he passed, I was in my early 50s at the time, and I noticed how much it just, the approval of dad meant to me. I loved my father. I respected my father. I expect, expect, respected his authority even though I was a man and I had left the home and established my own home. And yet somewhere there was this desire to be pleasing to my father. Here we have James and John. Their dad's right there. We don't know what other discussion might have gone on afterwards. But Jesus comes up and says, follow me. And it says immediately they do that and they leave the father with the family business and they follow Christ. The authority of his calling. Then Mark moves on. We see that Jesus isn't just this smooth talker. He's not just one that has a way with words and so he can convince people to do. No, it is because he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that Mark established in verse 1. But what else, what other ways was he authoritative? The second thing we begin to see is the authority of his teaching. Mark moves on, and again, he's a rapid-fire kind of writer, and so he's going to move on to the ministry of Christ. Now he's got a couple of disciples that he has com- you know, commanded them, drop your nets and follow me. They've responded. Now they start going into some of the area churches, what they would call in that day the synagogues among the Jewish people. And look what happens in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, again, that word immediately, On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22. And they, that is the people that were gathered around, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, what does it mean he had authority? He was teaching as if he had authority and not of the scribes. Let me explain the the synagogue to you a little bit if you're unfamiliar with kind of the Jewish traditions of church. They did have the temple in Jerusalem. And that's where they would go and they would do the sacrifices. They would go on somewhat of a regular basis to the temple. That was big church, kind of. 
But every community, if they had ten or more men, would have a synagogue. That is, ten or more men that were 12 years old that they could establish a synagogue. And they would have some of them would teach from time to time. They would have people that were trained, ascribed to, to teach. They would have visiting rabbis that would come by from city to city, kind of like a, a, a traveling pastor, and he would come in and teach. So it was not unusual for as the, Jesus came into this community of Capernaum to go to the synagogue, and they would say, since you're a traveling rabbi, pastor, minister, would you kind of do the reading today? And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. It, usually led by a synagogue ruler, the visiting rabbis, and on this day, Jesus is the one. And he begins to teach, and the people respond. We don't know what kind of group it is. Capernaum, uh, having been there to the Holy Land, Capernaum is really a small city. It's about, maybe about five or six times the size of, of our acreage here at the church. It's a very small city, and it didn't have a huge populace. So I don't know if there was 10 men there, if there would have been 20 men. The the synagogue that's there today is called the White Synagogue because of the white uh, 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 formations that are there, the, all the marble and, and all that, uh, and they call it the, the White Synagogue. But it's actually on top of the synagogue that would have been there in the day of Jesus's. As you know, in archaeology, sometimes we build on top of other things. And so as you're in that synagogue, you kind of get the sense of what Jesus was doing. And whether it was 10 or 20 or 30, they heard the teaching of Jesus and they responded saying, Man, this guy teaches with authority. In fact, it says there in, in the ESV that they were astonished. That Greek word means to strike panic or shock as if somebody has made impact upon you doesn't mean that he was teaching something that was scary. What it means is this authority, again, one of our favorite illustrations. If I'm going home today or if I'm going to travel down 124 and I'm just kind of coasting along and all of a sudden I see one of Jackson County's finest, what am I going to do? What do you do? Well, you're astonished. <laughs> you respond. You know, there's something you look down at the speedometer. How fast am I going? There's a respect to the authority and all of a sudden you understand, hey, I'm under this authority. And that's what Mark is establishing there. Why were they astonished? Because they had heard a lot of teachers. They'd been exposed to a lot of different priests and a lot of different ones that would come by. But they said, nobody has ever taught like this. See, a lot of the times that the rabbis were teaching that day, they would say something like this. You've, you know, you've heard it been said, or it has been said, and they would tell you what the scripture said. They would tell you things from the Old Testament. But one of the unique things about Jesus and his teaching is that he took that phrase, you know, of it has been said, and what did Jesus say? You've heard it been said, but I tell you. And all of a sudden, he personalizes, okay, you've heard this from the word of God. And I'm not going to go contrary to the word of God, but I want you to know now you're hearing it from God himself. And he would take it and he would take something that was kind of just a truth that the rabbis would teach. And he would say, okay, here's what it means in a personal way. You've heard it. It's been said. 
you know, not to commit adultery. But I, but I tell you that when you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He took this law, he took this word of God, and he personalized it in such a way that they said, no, none of the other rabbis are teaching this way. When it was time for me to go to a seminary, there was three that were in uh, kind of my high ranking that I heard great things about. And uh, one was a little bit closer to home. Uh, the other two are a little bit farther away. And one of my decisions, when I began to look at it, I noticed that the people at this one seminary that was a little bit closer were teaching the books written by the professors at this other seminary. And I said, why don't I cut out the middleman? I mean, I really did. I began to think, do I want to sit under somebody who has read the teachings of this person and now has regurgitated that and kind of, you know, made it their own? Or do I want to go to the person who actually wrote the book? And I decided that even though it was a lot farther away, 16 hours away, hey, let's go, I'm going to go to hear the guy who actually wrote the book. That's what they were getting in the authority of Jesus' teaching. Other people were talking about the teachings of God. And Jesus said, I want you to know that when you heard the sermon this morning, you heard God. The authority of his teaching. These are really big things. And it would have been really big with a Roman audience that makes much of authority. The authority of his calling, the authority of his teaching. But then there's one thing that Mark wants to make sure before we ever get out of the first chapter that we see really separates Jesus even that much more. And that is the authority of his healing. Look at verse 23 and 24. In the middle of the sermon as he's kind of just teaching one day in the synagogue, um, all of a sudden a man shouts out. Now I can say that in 38 years of ministry, there's been only one or two times, it has happened, that somebody has actually shouted out during the middle of the sermon. I, I mean, besides like an amen or something like that, and in a Baptist church there hasn't really been too many of those. It's just been one of those things where, you know, I've never had somebody distract the entire congregation by shouting out and drawing attention to themselves. But that's what happened this day. Jesus is teaching, and look what happens. Verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, let's break that down a little bit because a lot just happened in two verses. Now, when Jesus is teaching, this man that we would call demon-possessed, he's got a demon. He's in there. And so, okay, what's he doing in the synagogue? Well, believe it or not, some some people that could have a demon can actually come to church. And, And so he's there. And this man, in the middle of the sermon, the demon cries out through this man. Okay? And you can only imagine that everybody began to look at him. And look at what this demon says through this man. Number one, he says, what have you to do with this? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what title, what is the title Jesus of Nazareth tell us about Jesus? You can respond openly. He's a man. This is his humanity. Jesus is his earthly name. And he's from this city over here called Nazareth. Okay, not too, it's not really, really far from Capernaum. And so, 
hey, we just know you, we, you know, your daddy's a carpenter. In fact, we've, we've got a door at home that your daddy made for us. So he's responding to this earthly one, but look what this demon says. Have you come to destroy us? Who's us? The demons. Now I know, guys, in modern teaching, people go, you know, do you really believe in all this kind of demonic stuff and all this mystical stuff? Yes, because the Bible says it. So if that's offensive to you, I'm, no. I'm sorry that you're offended, but this is what the Word of God says. It really does happen, folks. There really is a devil, and he really does have a demonic army, and he really can possess unbelievers. I don't believe that he can possess believers. I believe that he can oppress believers, because I've felt that oppression before. But I don't think he can possess them. But, but here he has definitely possessed this person. And he cries out, the demon cries out, have you come to destroy us? Now, what is the demon saying when he asks the question, have you come to destroy us? What is he suggesting about Christ in comparison to himself? Power. Have you come to destroy me? Do you notice the relationship of authority? That even the demon establishes a place of authority in Christ? Uh, Guys, there's a lot being said by a demon. Have you come to destroy us? In other words, you have power over us. And then look what he says. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it amazing that the first testimony of who Christ is... In Mark's gospel is not from Peter or James or John or Andrew or from some other persons. I mean, we have been waiting for you forever. I'm so glad you're here. You are the Holy One, the Son of God. You are the Messiah. The first testimony of who Christ is comes from a demon who recognizes his authority and says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And instantly he notices, he notices and recognizes the authority of Jesus. Most pastors and teachers would be a little bit thrown out off if somebody who stood up in the middle of the service and all of a sudden began to, to become a major distraction. But Jesus is not distracted. He takes charge, folks. Look what he says, verse 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Are those words of authority? Are those words of suggestion? Are those words of kind of, you know, not so much a manly man, but a a man who just kind of wants to, you know, be suggestive? If you'd really like to, if it doesn't bother you, would, would you, would you kind of do us a favor and come out of the man? It's not the words of our Christ. It takes a disruptive situation and he rebukes this demon spirit. And he says, be silent and come out of him. And now look at verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. <laughs> he responded to the authority of Christ and to the command of Christ. Now what would you think if you were sitting there that day? What would be going through your mind? I mean, can you imagine the talk at dinner table that day? Man, that was something. <laughs> yeah. That guy just stood up and he started disrupting the whole sermon. And then Jesus did. I mean, we would have been telling that story for weeks. 
But look how the people responded. Verse 27. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal that Mark wants to establish. You will see throughout Mark's gospel, son of man, son of man, son of man, suffering servant. He comes not to be served, but to serve. He comes to redeem lost mankind. He's on a mission, and this mission is as a servant. He is the Lamb of God. But Mark wants us to know from the beginning, don't you miss for a minute that this Lamb of God, this suffering servant, is the Holy One of God. Folks, I... I do appreciate, you know, sometimes I'll hear a song, you know, Jesus is my friend, he's my buddy. I, I appreciate that we have intimacy, that God has so allowed us to have intimacy with him. And we sang a song last week, he is God, he's my father, sometimes a father and sometimes a friend. And I firmly believe that. But let's never make a friend out of Jesus if we do not understand first and foremost that he is authority, he is the Holy One of God. He is the very, he is Son of Man, but he is Son of God. Do you see how that changes our perspective? There was a lot of Friday nights when I was growing up as a teenager that one thing kept me from making wrong decisions and making a right decision. Not that I did it all the time. Because I knew my daddy was going to be sitting his green lazy boy when I got, came home. And our, ours was a small house. Had a back door and a front door. You never went in the back door. If you did, dad's green lazy boy was right there. I mean, when you opened that door, that's where it was. If you came in the front door, you had to go past from the kitchen, past his green lazy boy where dad would be sitting. And there were many a Friday night that my will wasn't so much, man, I just want to be a good guy, I want to make all the right decisions. No, the authority of my dad kept me from making a lot of dumb decisions. My heart wasn't quite there yet. My, my want to wasn't there, but the authority of my father was there. And I'm going, I've got to pass the green lazy boy with my dad sitting in it. And it was his authority and that respect for authority of his position. Even when I wasn't so respectful as a son to a father, I respect, respected that authority. He brought me into this world and he can take me out of this world. Do you understand that principle, how important authority is? And that's why Mark, to a Roman community that understood well about Caesar's and the Roman Senate, and authority. And you don't do this because there's an authority that says stuff. They get authority. And so, painstakingly, Mark says, I want you to know, this son of man, he's the son of God. Make no mistake, guys. He, he can love us as a friend. And we can have intimacy with holy God. And I'm so thankful for that because of the finished work of God. But please, when you see Jesus as a friend, please never remove the authority that he is the son of God. He just is the son of God. And he loves you so much that he says, okay, now you can know me on the intimacy as a brother and a friend. But that, his authority 
precedes the friendship. Do you get that? His authority of being the son of God precedes the intimacy that now he brings to us. And that we can say, yeah, Jesus is a brother and he is a friend. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, Mark's description that uh, Jesus is the son of man, that he is a suffering servant. We're going to see that throughout this gospel. And yet, Father, I thank you this morning that as we begin to kind of analyze and kind of look at the, the writing structure that Mark has given us, that he wants to establish first and foremost that the suffering servant, this Lamb of God, is the Son of God. And so, Father, this morning we come, and Father, we're about to sing a song that's over 300 years old. And there's not a song that we sing a lot, and maybe a song that we identify with uh, uh, Easter and big choirs and hundred-piece orchestra. And yet, in a simple little church, with a simple little praise band this morning, we come and we just want to sing a song to you. Father, we want to sing about your authority. Father, how we need to crown you, Father, that you are, (laughs) Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And the Son of God, Father, lowered himself purposely to come to be a son of man and to be a sacrifice all to all those that would turn their, their trust and their faith in his word. So we make much of you today, and it's not Easter Sunday morning, Father, but today we sing out in ancient words that you are holy, holy God, that your Son is King of all kings. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.